Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 this morning as we continue in our teaching series in the book of Acts that we've entitled The Gospel Unleashed. And this morning, the title of my message is this, Can You Be Christian and a Racist? Can you be Christian and a racist? And as I'm beginning, I'm going to say three words that are pretty strong. Racism is wrong. Now, I don't think I just blew anyone's mind. I don't seriously think that anyone is sitting out here going, what? R- racism is wrong? Really? I've never heard that. Um, you know, I know that everyone, at least publicly, will profess that racism is wrong. Everyone agrees that it needs to be done away with, but we don't agree on how. Our society does not agree on how this should happen, but we do all agree that racism is wrong. And the question I want us to answer, one of the questions I want to answer or ask this morning is why? Why do you say that racism is is wrong? Why do you say that it needs to end? Well, it could be for a few couple of different reasons. It could be because of society. You have been influenced by society because it has brought this issue to the forefront of conversation. As you've noticed over the past few months especially, we have been engaging in this topic of racism, and it is nearly impossible to turn a blind eye to it. We all recognize that racism is evil, and it may be that you have come to that conclusion because society is clearly saying that now. Or secondly, it could be because of something personal, someone that you know, Someone that you love uh, has been a victim of racism, has been mistreated because of their ethnicity, or it could even be you who has experienced racism, and the truth is you're at a point where you're done. It's, it's over, you've had enough, and now it's time to take action. That could be another view uh, because of a, a personal uh, issue. Or could it be this? God said so. I want you to think about that. Is that enough? Is it enough that God has said that racism is wrong for it to be wrong? And I want you to imagine that what if you were to go out where they're, where they're having a, a protest or a riot, and in the middle of it, you stand up and say, hey, everybody, listen, racism is wrong. Yes, racism is wrong. And it has got to stop today. Yes, today. You know why? Why? Because God said so. They would go on, right? They would not, probably would not take that as uh, strong enough for a reason why it needs to happen. But we need to understand that the truth is that without God, everything, and I mean everything, loses its meaning because he... God, the creator of all, is the standard of truth by which we determine what is right and what 
is wrong. And so as a church, we proclaim that the reason that racial discrimination and prejudice is first and foremost wrong is because God said so. And, you know, to be honest with you, I was a little bit hesitant to try to tackle this this conversation about racism, especially because, um, as I said earlier, our news and our social media feeds and our conversations have all been flooded and dominated by this conversation. But you know what? Acts chapter 10 this morning deals with this subject. It clearly reveals that the first century church dealt with racism, and therefore, because it's in our text, clearly in our text, we are going to engage with this. And as we're going through this topic, there's several things I want to do. Number one, I want to define what is racism. This will come up later on in in the message, so uh, if you want to write it down now, that's great, but if not, you can wait. Number two, the question that we need to ask is, why was racism in the church in the first place. Number three, can you be Christian and a racist? And then number four, how do we end racism? Uh, We're going to see that this is an issue that God had to bring to an end in the first century church in order for the church to be established and to move forward in the gospel. So first question we're going to ask is, what is racism? And this is really not an easy question, uh, word to define in today's culture. And that is because the meanings of words are in people. Have you ever heard that before? When I was in college, my best friend was taking a class, and he said, you know what, James? Meanings are in people. And what he meant by that, and I've, I've come to see that that's true, is that what you mean about a word may not mean what I mean about that word. For example, when I was younger and growing up, if I said something was wicked, I meant that it was evil or sinister. That's what everyone thought. That is so wicked. Now, today, if you say that is wicked, it could actually mean the exact opposite. It could mean that, man, that thing is good. That thing is awesome. That thing is beautiful. So it's important that we make sure that as we are defining and using words, even in conversations, that we listen and try to understand what do you mean when you say that word. That's what I want to look at this morning with racism. And it might surprise you. It might surprise you that the word racism is not found anywhere in the scriptures. You cannot find the word racism. And that's because it is the expression of a broader sin that the word of God identifies as the sin of partiality. That's a partiality. You have to really be uh, articulate when you say that word. But the sin of partiality is what, uh, is what racism would fall under. And um, partiality, according to, I like uh, John Piper's definition. He says, partiality means that you base your treatment of someone or your attitude towards someone on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. I think that that's a pretty good uh, definition of what partiality is. For example, uh, in James 2.1, God condemns it. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, don't show partiality. And then he gives this example of say, he says, hey, at your gathering, if a rich person walks in wearing a ring and some some good duds, really good fine clothes, and at the same time, a poor person walks in with shabby clothes on, do not say to the rich guy, hey, we've got this nice seat over here for you. Come here and sit down. And to the poor guy go, 
Um, I tell you what, you can sit here at the, on the floor or you can stand over there. He says, uh, if you do that, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? But if you show partiality, you are committing what? If you show partiality, you are committing what? Sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So partiality is making unjust distinctions between people. And uh, in this scenario, it was based on socioeconomic factors. The rich were being given preferential treatment over the poor. Now, when it comes to racism, the definition that I want to use for racism is that racism is partiality expressed towards a person or people group based solely on ethnicity. And this includes their uh, cultural practices and physical features, and it also includes withholding good when you should give it and or inflicting harm because a person has, again, a certain ethnicity. Now, I want to make sure that we are careful here that when we're talking about racism and partiality that we don't make the mistake of assuming that the minority group is always the one being oppressed and discriminated against. Okay, We've got to be careful about that. Uh, Throughout history, the scriptures are clear. God always defends the weak and the marginalized and the poor, but he also says this in Exodus 23.3. I think this this is important to understand. Do not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. In other words, just because someone is poor, just because someone is vulnerable, don't assume they are innocent in a case. They have the same sin nature as everyone does. You know, when I was reading the book of Revelation, it says that both the great and the small will be in heaven and in hell. It is not based upon your, uh, your righteousness is not based upon where you fit in the society. It's dependent upon how we respond to Jesus. And so we got to be careful that we examine the facts and that we make a righteous judgment whenever we're dealing with issues like this. And, you know, and I say that because it is possible for the minority group, it it is possible for the minority group to discriminate and hold down the majority. And if you don't believe me, Let's look at today's text because that is exactly what is happening in the church, okay? So let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the third hour, that's uh, right around uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, And now send men to Joppa, And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so our passage opens with a centurion named Cornelius. He was a Gentile. That means he was a non-Jew who was a Roman military official. And the first thing that we see about Cornelius is that he was a man who was religious. He was a man who feared God, and he was a man who worshiped the God of Israel. He wasn't an Israelite, but he wasn't even a proselyte. Uh, He had not converted to Judaism, but he still feared God, and he worshiped him. And um, his worship was expressed through the giving of alms and through prayers. And, you know, when I think about Cornelius, I think he would be a, a, a cool guy to be around, don't you? Wouldn't you want to be, just reading this passage, especially when he was giving out the cash. I would love to be around him because he's a very generous type of guy. But, you know, um, something that's important that we need to understand is that as good as Cornelius was in the eyes of man, before God, he wasn't good enough. His righteousness fell short. He was a sinner who still needed a Savior. At this point in the passage, he is not saved. And and we know this because if you read ahead into chapter 11, Peter is going to go to, um, spoiler alert, Cornelius is going to get saved. And when he does, he goes to Jerusalem and tells the rest of the disciples. And he gives a little piece of information uh, that... uh, we don't get in this passage, that the angel told him. It says that the angel uh, said, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And then in verse 14, it says, he will declare to you a message, look at this, by which you will be saved. You and all your household. So what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is that he was not saved from his sin yet and that he still needed what? To hear the gospel. But think about this. Could the angel not have just preached the gospel to him in that moment? I mean, why did he say, go send for Peter? Well, I think part of the answer is because God has given us, human beings, the privilege of proclaiming the gospel. That is the, that is the way that he wants to do it. God's plan is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, not through angels, though he could, but through his disciples. And so God first sends an angel to Cornelius and instructs him to send for Peter. And look, because here's how we know that Cornelius feared God. He did what he was told. He obeyed. That is the proof that you fear God is that you will obey him. So, which leads us to our second question is, why was racism in the church In the first place. And we're going to pick up in verse 9 and move forward from there. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Who knows what time the sixth hour is? About noon. Okay. The Jewish day started at 6 a.m. And so whatever is you add to that. So 6 plus 6 is 12. And it says in verse 10, that's, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened 
and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14 But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common, or another word for uncommon would be impure or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common, do not call impure. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So what's what's all this about? Well, according to the dietary laws found in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, there were certain animals that Jews were allowed to eat. They were called kosher, and there were certain animals that they were not allowed to eat, which would have been unkosher. And evidently, uh, in this sheet that was dropped down, there were, were animals that Peter would have never wanted to eat. Uh, I've got a list of, of what could have been in that sheet. I'm not exactly sure uh, what was in there, but camels, hares, which uh, that means rabbits, uh, rock badgers, pigs, mice, geckos, lizards, ravens, seagulls, um, owls were in that. And to be honest with you, there's only one group in here of animal that I would eat. Which one? No, bacon. I would eat the bacon in this one. So, But the thing is, is that Peter looked at that and said, that is detestable. And it could be, uh, well, I'll get to that in just a second. I'm jumping ahead. But secondly, uh, so what God is doing here is that he is abolishing dietary laws. Secondly, uh, and what I think is more importantly, and I hope that if you are not a Jew, you will agree with me on this, is that God was addressing a racial prejudice that Peter and the Jews had towards non-Jews. Now, the Gentiles were prejudiced towards the Jews too, so I don't want to minimize that. We'll see that in just a second. But the Jews were being uh, racially prejudiced towards the rest of the world, this minority group. And, uh, and uh, so God is going to, to address this. And in order to get the, the right mindset of what a Jew was thinking about um, a Gentile, it's important to understand their relationship. And, you know, all throughout history of mankind, the righteous, those who are righteous, have striven with those who are unrighteous. As far back as uh, the beginning when Abel, was the righteous man, was killed by his unrighteous brother, Cain. And also, the godless Egyptians enslaved the people of God and killed their children, the people of God who were known as Hebrews. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the enemies of of Israel, the nations like the Midianites, the Babylonians, the Greeks, they would conquer and oppress the Jews. And by the time we get to Peter, uh, Jerusalem has been occupied by the Roman Empire for about roughly 100 years. And under their rule, they stripped the Jews of all dignity, of all humanity and their freedoms. And that left the, understandably, that left the Jewish people with bitter resentment towards the Roman Empire who had dominated them. 
But here's something that we need to understand, that in the midst of it all, the Jews understood something. They understood that they were God's chosen people. Um, And they knew that because God had made it clear to Abraham. But they had taken this truth that they're God's chosen people, and they perverted it, and they misunderstood why God had chosen them and set them apart as a nation. Um, John Stott says that the tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew, no Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. On the contrary, all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table of a Gentile. And so, in their warped thinking, and they imagined that God had set them apart from the rest of the world. Why? Because they thought that God loved them and that they hated the Gentiles. They would have, they would have thought. They, they would have taught that the only reason that God created Gentiles was like firewood to throw onto the fires of hell. And this is the view of a, of a Jew at the time. And, and Peter and other believing Jews, they would have, at this time, right now in our passage, they would have said, you know what, Jesus loves me. He came and he died for me and he rose again and he's coming back for me. They would have preached the true gospel. And, but the problem is with them is that they would have thought that it was solely meant for them because they misunderstood two things. Number one, they misunderstood the Abrahamic covenant, and secondly, the Great Commission. And I'm just going to do a real quick reminder of what those two are. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God came to Abraham when he was just one man before the nation of Israel had been uh, birthed, and he said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. All the Israelites, when this is read, it's like, yes, God is going to make us into a great nation. He says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Yes, God's going to bless us. And in verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. Yes, God will protect us. He will take care of us. Amen. That is the Abrahamic covenant. That's how far they went. But there's one part they left out, which is the end of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see what that is? Do you see who those, that is? Who is that? It's Okay. The Gentiles, that's us. From the very beginning, God promised to bless us, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by sending the Messiah through the line of Abraham. But that's not all. If that wasn't clear enough, Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, before he went into heaven, he gave the Great Commission. We talk about this so much, we should have it memorized by now, but I'm going to go over it one more time. Verse 19 of Matthew 28, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations baptizing them, all nations, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
clearly, uh, if we look at the Great Commission, we're right there in this passage. And right before he, he ascends into heaven, he says, you will be my witnesses, where? To the end of the earth. Jesus was very clear from the beginning that God's uh, plan and at the end was to save and include the Gentiles. But for some reason, and it's because of pride, the Jews were blinded by prejudice, and therefore they were keeping the gospel. They were oppressing the rest of us by keeping good the forgiveness of our sins from us to themselves, and they were withholding, in one sense, like eternal life from the Gentiles. And so Peter was contemplating what the vision meant, and during that time, the men that Cornelius sent come to the door at the very hour. And they say, hey, Cornelius saw a vision. We've come here um, to ask you to come to where we live. And look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. It says, so he, speaking of Peter, look what he does, invited them in to be his guests. What does that show? It shows that Peter recognized his prejudice, his discrimination, his racism, He confessed it, and he repented. And what I love about this is he didn't just talk about it. He did something. He invited them in. In this situation, he invited them into his house, and they end up spending the night. Well, the next morning, they get up, and they head for Caesarea. Caesarea. And when they get to Cornelius' house, in verse 25, it says, And when Peter entered... Speaking of Cornelius' house, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. What's, what's he saying here? You know, before this conversation with, uh, with the angel, I think Peter may have said, Okay, yeah, that's where he should be, at my feet. He is lifting him up, and basically what he's saying is, look, we're equal. I'm a man who's sinful just like you are. In verse 27, it says, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So he's totally doing something that was totally against what he was used to. He's gone into the house of Gentiles, and now he is surrounded by Gentiles. 28 says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of, an, of another nation. But God has shown me. In other words, God has said that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me. Do you see what Peter's doing? Basically, he's confessing his sin. He's basically saying, I was wrong. You know that we've said that we can't meet with you. We can't come into your home. You can't come into ours, but we're wrong. He openly admitted it, and he's walking in true humility. And in verses 30 through 33, Cornelius recounts again basically what was shared earlier in the passage, how the angel had come to him and told him to come Uh, call for Peter. And in verse 34, it says that, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God 
shows no partiality. In other words, he's saying God is not racist. He's not prejudiced against any ethnicity. But in every nation, but in every nation, that that means every ethnicity, that means every culture, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is good news to all of us, that, that the gospel, that God doesn't just love the Jews, he loves all of his creation. Now, I want to be very careful right here. Notice how it says, uh, who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. We have to be careful that we don't read this and say, you know what, this is teaching that because Cornelius did good works, God decided to show him grace and that God said, I'm going to save you now. If that's the fact, it means if that's what happened, that's not grace. It means that he worked for it. Okay, so we want to be clear that that's not what this is teaching. What I believe it's teaching is that um, that uh, Cornelius, who was a Gentile, responded to the light that was given to him. He he didn't turn his back on what God had revealed to him in his Gentile nation. He saw the grace, uh, he responded to the grace that he had been given, and he had gone as far as he knew to go. And therefore, God sent Peter, the former racist, it's important to, to understand, the former racist, to preach the gospel to Cornelius. And Peter continues in verse 36, when he says, as for the, as for the word, I'm sorry, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Here's the gospel. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen of God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is the gospel. Peter clearly came to share the message that he had to hear and respond to in order to, to have his sins forgiven and to be saved. And verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, 
extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, I want to stop here and just make a real quick point about what's going on here. Peter comes, he preaches the gospel. They believe in their hearts and respond. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes and falls upon them. Then what does Peter say? Hey, these people are saved, therefore let's what? Baptize them. There are people that will teach you that in order to receive the Holy Spirit, you must be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit. Well, this passage clearly shows that they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. I just wanted to point that out um, because that doctrine that's taught is not, if you just take it to this passage right here, it shows that that is not the order. And he commanded to them, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some Days. I bet you there was a lot of feasting in Cornelius' house and rejoicing. And Peter, I bet as he laid in his bed or mat or whatever they laid on back then, just smiled the whole time and was amazed at God's mercy. So let's answer the question, can you be Christian and a racist? All right, we got a no. Okay. It's kind of one of those depends, isn't it? Um, but by the time that this has happened, this account, it's been years since, the, since Jesus has ascended and the Holy Spirit's come down upon the earth. Peter and the Jews have been building the church for, for years. This isn't like the day after Pentecost. Was Peter a, a Christian? Was he saved? Clearly he was saved, he was, and he was preaching the gospel to who? To the Jews, but according to this passage, you can be, and so according to this passage, you can be a racist and saved. And here's what I, here, don't, don't throw things at me yet. We got to remember, we all have blind spots. There are things that you are doing right now in your life that you don't know are wrong. And that's why it's, we got to be careful when we look back in, in history and, and go, I can't believe they did that. Because there are people, if, if, if we die and, and hit, human history keeps going on forward and they look back at us in 500 years, they're going to be like, I can't believe they did that on Facebook. There are a lot of things that, that we do right now that we do not see. And, and, and I think the reason that is is because if God showed us everything, we would be so discouraged we would not be able to grow. So he gives us, when we're ready, uh, what is what, where we need to grow. And the church was ready to see this. They first had to, to accept it amongst them, themselves. But I will say this, the proof that Peter was a true believer is that when he was confronted, he repented, he responded. That was the fruit of the proof that the Holy Spirit was working within him. So can you be a Christian and be a racist? I would say if, it's, if you're blind to it. But if God brings it to you and shows you and you stay in that, I would question, do you truly have the Holy Spirit living in you? Now, how do we end racism? This is the huge question that everyone is asking in our culture. It's a great question. It is something that we do need to ask, and society is giving us answers on how to do it. They are saying that, number one, we need... Now, this is, this is not everything. I'm just kind of summarizing from what, how I understand it. Number one, they're saying the first thing you need to do is acknowledge it. You need to acknowledge that racism exists. You need to be willing to see it, and you need to be willing to examine your biases, your, in other words, your blind spots. Secondly, they would say you need to take action. And some of the ways that they would say to do this is to show empathy, 
try to empathize with those who have been experiencing racism. Uh, they would say that you need to take a stand, call out bias and prejudice when you see it, and that uh, we need to defend the weak and the marginalized. That is what our society is clearly teaching. Another thing that our society would teach us is that we need to make reforms. Reform needs to be made in, in the homes, in the schools, in businesses, and in government. And what I want to say here, and I want to be very clear, is that everything that they are saying, right, what I just shared is I 100% agree with that. 100% agree. Um, the church needs to acknowledge it. We need to take action. Here's where we disagree, okay, is that I would say that first we need to preach the gospel. That is the difference between the church and society because the gospel is the power of Christ. It is the power of God to change and to transform lives. Now, church, we can be guilty of saying, that's all we need to do. Preach the gospel. But the truth is, if you really preach the gospel and believe it, it will cause you to do all the rest of these things. And when it comes to like reform in the government and in businesses and throughout society, that's what Jesus has said from the beginning. That's why he's bringing his government. That's the perfect government. That's the perfect society. That's the perfect culture that we're all longing for. And he's saying, you know what? I want you to have that culture in you right now and let it spread out into and affect the culture that you're living in. But as you do it, make sure that you're preaching the gospel because racism is more about a sin issue than it is about skin tissue. We need to understand that. It is about the heart. It is about transformation and neither legislation or education or intimidation can reform. It can suppress it, but it can't reform the human heart, but the spirit of Christ can. And so we want to be sure that we first preach the gospel. And listen, the gospel, uh, the message of the gospel is not end racism. The message of the gospel is not to end inequality or to end world hunger, or to save the environment, or to secure equal wages. It's not even to protect the unborn children or to uphold biblical marriage. That is not the gospel. Those are all good things. Those are all wonderful things, but they are not the gospel. They are the fruit that is produced by people who believe and respond to the love of Christ through the gospel. And the, and the gospel message is this, simple. Very clear. I hope to make it clear. It's number one, repent. You are someone who is a sinner who needs to repent. You need to turn and bow your knee to the, to the loving lordship of Jesus Christ who died for you. Receive his forgiveness. Be filled with the spirit and be transformed by his spirit. That is the gospel that God has called the church to proclaim. And if we proclaim anything above that, we are not being obedient, no matter how good the issue is. And so I hear people say, we need to talk about, we need to preach about racism in the church. And I would say we do every single week that we proclaim the gospel because what we teach is that we all are equal. 
God has told us that. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we need a Savior. And when we preach the gospel, when we believe it, hearts are changed, lives are transformed, and racism comes to an end. Because, And here's why. Because I see myself in the true light of how I should, and I also see you as I should. We're all broken image bearers in the need of a Savior who has accepted us, has shown no partiality to all of us who have come to him through Jesus Christ, regardless of our ethnicity. And that is the gospel that ends racism. Amen? Amen.